Alrighty, and we are back with Cibolo Creek Conversations. My name is Wyatt Marchant. I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? Good, good. Doing good. Good. How about nice. you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah. Hoping that the uh, new, we just moved 10 feet over into my living room, <laughs> but hopefully the lighting's a little bit better because my wife has been telling me it's not great. Really? I, I mean, I'm not a expert on that. Well, neither is my wife. Kind of. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going there. I said I've watched it. I think it's just fine. Yeah, I think it does the job. I'm not too worried about it. No, but... So we had a Q&A Sunday this past. Yes, we did. Uh, for those of you who may be listening and don't know what Q&A Sunday is, let me give you a little background. Um, I've always felt like church ought to be a safe place to ask questions. And the reason that's important to me is um, in some church contexts, it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, you're supposed to kind of buy the party line and, you know, believe what's what you've been told, hook, line, and sinker, and don't question it because then the question may sound like a challenge to it. And everybody acts like they actually understand it even though probably most don't <laughs> yeah. and you know some churches they they aren't comfortable with the realities of people having doubts and you know wanting to really poke around into stuff and understand it they just want you to believe it because they told you that something or other and i just have never seen that as a really healthy environment and then Sybil Creek is, as, you know, a church, we've always encouraged the experience of seeking, whether that's somebody who's not a believer yet, but they're asking questions and they're starting to do some investigating and wondering about the legitimacy of Jesus and all the, you know, claims of Christianity, or whether that's somebody who's been at it for years, have been following Christ for years, I, I still, I don't think we ever stop seeking, yearning to learn more and discover yeah. more, go deeper, all those things. And so it's a value at Cibolo. It's a value in my life as far as creating spiritual environments. So we've, we've really tried to create opportunities for our church family to ask questions. We try to do that in all different formats, meaning reassure people that it's safe to challenge something or to ask a question about something and not be intimidated to admit what you don't know or what you don't believe or what you don't understand. Uh, we've always sort of nurtured that kind of environment. And a number of years ago, I thought, well, what's, what's some other ways that we could live into that value? And I came up with this idea, this, well, what if... Once or twice a year, um, we had a Sunday where instead of me doing all the talking and a message, what if there was a way that we could actually take questions from the audience and respond to them, you know, kind of real time right there in that moment? And, you know, wonderful use of technology. People, we figured out people could text questions into, you know, a site, and then they would be uploaded into um, basically a, a laptop computer or iPad 
And we just figured out a format where there'd be a host on the stage with me and they'd sort of be receiving the questions. They'd hand off one of the questions to me. I'd take a few minutes to answer it. Um, Certainly not intended to be the final answer or the completely thorough and exhaustive answer, but to just address the question in in a couple of minutes and um, then move on to a next question. And it's, it's been really, really well received. We get lots of very positive feedback about not only the questions that get asked and how we answer them, but we get very positive feedback that we even do it. Yeah. And, you know, if for nothing else, it's a different format. It's a creative way to present, you know, um, spiritual information and truth. And um, it's something that I really enjoy doing. Feel, I feel very connected to the audience when, when we're doing it. And uh, so this past Sunday was Q&A Sunday, and um, you were out of town. Yes, sadly. You've, you've hosted Q&A Sunday with us a few times, and then you were out of town uh, this week, so my good friend Paul Yoder, who's also done it in the past, um, he and I were on the platform, and we got some questions, got some great questions, and uh, did our best to respond to them live and, again, got some really good feedback about it. Yeah. What, one of the frustrations, uh, I, that may be the right word or the wrong word, what, one of the frustrations of it is we just can't possibly get to every question that gets asked on a Sunday. We'll get dozens of questions. We only have time for a few if you take just a couple minutes for each question. Um, so... We're, we're always trying to figure out how do we respond to the questions that didn't get addressed. Yeah. And um, so we recognize that this podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, this podcast could be one of the ways that we might be able to address some of the questions and invite people to come and listen to the responses to the questions that didn't get answered. Yeah. Yeah, and so that, that is what we're going to do. And honestly, though the title isn't a question of the past podcast. I do try to select topics or, or build off of things that you've already taught in a way that is applicable that I, I at least feel like people are kind of wondering about or dealing with or whatever it may be. And so, and that is kind of the goal of the podcast anyways, is to talk about things that I guess people who don't necessarily aren't in the Christian world or in the Christian culture, whatever it is, or in the church, uh, might be wondering about, but then at the same time, a lot of those things are also yeah. things that Christians are wondering about in the church. Yeah, it's it's amazing how many Christians are asking and wondering, asking about and wondering about many of the same things that non-Christians mm-hmm. are wondering about because of, you know, culture and society and times. Are, we're all living through the same sort of experiences. Um Certainly, um, a Christian may be asking the question from a slightly different angle just by virtue of their faith, but they're still asking much of the same question. Yeah. And I've always had a heart for whether it's I'm teaching or the format of this podcast, just talking about things that really matter to people. And what people, I've always, I've always, endeavored to answer the questions people are asking and recognizing that sometimes um, 
they may be asking about something from a certain perspective and there may be more to it than what they're really thinking about. So then I try to kind of broaden their horizon on how they're thinking about the question and particularly as it relates to faith and God and the scriptures. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think any time that you can be talking about things that are of interest to people, you just get uh, better results. Yeah, and there are like we there were so many questions that you weren't able to get to, and a lot of them were, you know, you can kind of throw them into one. But um, that's just on one Sunday when I'm guessing most people came unprepared. I wonder how many questions people have just like throughout the year. Yeah. It makes me just like want to create like a hotline <laughs> of just like send your questions and somehow they'll get answered. That's a great idea. It'd be a full time job, but <laughs> yeah. It'd be something that'd be awesome. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great idea if you if you want to create some sort of experience where that happens, um, you'd have my permission to do that because I, I think that would be very relevant. Um yeah, we, we never get to all the questions. And um, and I think the same thing that you just mentioned. What about the Sunday where we're not? It's not a Q and A Sunday, and I'm in the middle of a series. And and the, I have this thought a lot of times as as, as I'm approaching the platform. Like, okay, today I'm going to talk about you know what are the top, I'm talking about compassion. Let's make up a topic. And then I always wonder, you know, how many people in the room right now that, that that's the last thing on their mind. They have another really, really critical question of life or dilemma that they're facing that they were they're sitting there wishing. I wish somebody would talk about, you know, the thing that I'm most concerned about today. And I oftentimes I, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm talking about X. Meanwhile, there's somebody in the in the audience, and they're dealing with Y or Z, and I'm not even going anywhere near what's of you know most pertinent interest to them. But that's that's the tension of speaking once a week, and you can't speak to everything, can't meet every need in the room, and you just got to trust God that okay, what what He led you to talk about today is going to be pertinent and whether they recognize it or not, it has value to maybe another day in their life. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's definitely true because I think a, a lot of the time people will come in. I know this has happened to me. It's happened to my wife, Allie. They'll come in and they'll the message that's being taught is the message they didn't want to hear but probably most needed to hear. <laughs> and so um, I know that happens a lot. But it also, the inability of a single person, you or any pastor to teach to every single person's need on a Sunday morning kind of is a good segue into, uh, I guess our first batch of questions. So I'm going to be categorizing these yeah. the ones that are left over. Yeah. So them. from what I understand, you did a, you collected all of the questions mm -hmm. from Sunday and put them in some kind of a spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. And so all, yeah, every single question that was asked, I have in a spreadsheet. Do you remember what the total number of questions was? 73 unique questions, but a lot of them had different types of votes on them. So instead of asking a question, people can upvote. Oh, that's right. They can yeah. upvote. And so, I mean, there was definitely over, I don't know, 100, 150. 
Okay. Probably. And again, you could group of them, which is what I've done, some of them, um, into certain categories. Right. That were all kind of similar. But now, before we jump into today's topic, you wrote me um, a text message or email mm-hmm. about compiling all the questions. Yeah. And you made an observation that you found interesting. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. So in the past, um, there's most of the questions are kind of hot topic related, cultural related. Um, so, you know, abortion. On, and I honestly was just thinking about this. Nobody asked if you were a dog or cat person. <laughs> they, they, they've heard that and they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure that it's my buddy's mom that always asked it. And I guess she was over over with it. But anyways, but yeah, they're, they're mainly hot topic questions uh, or cultural related. And we had a good percentage of those, but it was by no means the majority this year. It was actually a lot of uh, more doctrine or theology, cor- like correct beliefs and how to communicate them uh, or justify them. Um, and then also like Bible study and how to interpret and, and study God's yeah. word. Yeah, so when you when you shared that with me, I was, I've been kind of thinking about that. I was trying to figure out, like, why would that be? And I, th- I think, this is just a guess. I think in the last several years, the conversation has shifted in society. Years ago, I think the conversation was about Christian beliefs and Christian worldview, you know, like the questions are about morality and ethics and human behavior. And people were interested or disinterested in, depending on what side of the, the aisle you're on, they were, you're disinterested or interested in what Christians have to say about something. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the past, a lot of the questions were about, you know, what is the Christian position on some of these, you know, big ticket social items? But I think in the last couple of years, the conversation shifted and it's no longer a question about the Bible or a question about Christian worldview. I think now the question's about truth. Yeah. Just fundamental definition of what is truth. And we're living in a time when, you know, it's it's all relative. It's my truth, your truth, what I imagine myself to be or what I imagine to be right or wrong. And you can't tell me that my truth is not the truth. And so truth is just getting totally lamblasted. And so I think the questions of doctrine and the questions of studying the Bible are about not what do I do in response to these ethical or moral dilemmas as a Christian, but why do I do? Why why would I hold a position about X, Y, or Z in relationship or in contrast to what my society is telling me? People may be wanting to go even a next step deeper in not just knowing what to do, but to understanding why. I would do that. Yeah. What's what's the fixed truth that I'm anchored to in order to react or respond to what's being thrown at me in society? 
I have two responses to that. Okay. One is I agree because in the past it kind of seemed a lot of these issues, it kind of seemed like there was we both sides of a given hot topic or cultural issue were in the middle discussing it. And then it, it kind of seems like it just, they just took it and ran. And so it's like, okay, well, there's no, there's no more, no, like, we're not discussing this anymore, really. It's just, how can we, the, the two sides are so far apart that it's like, okay, well, there's not a whole lot of discussion to be had there, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I don't need to, I'm not, I'm not going to go apologetically, you know, or, or not even apologetically, but I'm not going to go attempt to justify myself. It's not going to matter. I'm going to be wrong in the other side's view either way. Mm-hmm. And then the second view is that people are wondering the, the why I believe something because everything's been questioned with that relativity thing. Jordan Peterson said something interesting. He was like, you know, nobody has ever, nobody was prepared to answer the question or to have somebody ask them, justify marriage, go. <laughs> right? It's like, well, it's just this thing that we've held up as like yeah. important in our society and our culture for a really long time. And then all of a sudden it's no longer that way. People are like, no, it's, it's actually bad. And so it's like, wait, hang on. Well, I wasn't prepared to justify this. Yeah. I still believe it's the right, it's good, but I don't know how to justify it. And mm. so, mm. and so, um, I think that there are, a, are a lot of people and, and Christians wondering, I guess like, what do I believe? But also more specifically, why do I believe it? Uh, yeah. cause I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think that there's a lot of just, I don't think there's a lot of Christians that just the everyday, I think that people, I think, and this is probably the church's fault to a certain degree. We've kind of lost our willing or our, we have not, I think, treated doctrine responsibly in the past so long. And so people have been forgetting what they believe. I would agree. And so, um, I mean, if you ask the same person to, well, what is the Trinity? Granted, that's a hard topic, right? But it's yeah. like just fundamentally, like <laughs> don't don't like don't make sense of the three persons thing. But you're like, what is it? And um, but anyways, yeah. So that's kind of my take on it. No, I I think that for a number of different reasons, um, preaching, teaching, Bible knowledge, um, we've taken the approach of keep it easy, keep it simple, um, make it approachable. And in doing so, we've avoided the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, you you do that long enough, and yeah, a generation grows up and they don't have a grasp of those deeper understandings of what things mean. Yeah, and then culture or society throws them in the deep end and we haven't taught them how to swim. Exactly. Yeah, most of what we're encountering in culture and society is deep end kind of stuff. That's why I I keep making the point, uh, I'm trying to get people to understand that a Christian's response to much of the social um, topics of the day, um, Christians often interpret them as being political topics 
and I don't think they're political. I think they're deeply spiritual. They've been politicized. I keep saying that. They, they've been politicized, but I don't avoid talking about them because they've been politicized. I have to help people understand the spiritual moorings that lie underneath everything from abortion to gender ideology to you know a host of other um, lifestyle choices and lifestyle beliefs. They're deeply spiritual at their core, and those beliefs are rooted in timeless uh, doctrinal doctrinal beliefs or you know um, truths. But if we just give people the answer or what we want them to make the answer to be, we don't really teach them the thinking behind why we might take a position, then like you said, they're, they're not really equipped to be able to swim in the deep end. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the quote unquote conversation these days isn't much conversation, it's debate and it's often attacking. And so what I'm seeing is that people who don't really know why they believe what they believe, they just have, you know, learned some bullet points and have kind of fixed their minds on those things, but they don't really understand them, then those people can be easily intimidated to back away Mm -hmm. because they get pushed beyond what they're capable of really um, communicating. And so then they get nervous and they, uh, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. So then they either back away or they just avoid getting into the conversation. Yeah. And on top of that, they don't want to be whatever, name they were called yeah, whatever, whatever, they were whatever label and that's one of the tricks of the trade now for the the attacker is to just throw out a label that everybody you know that stigmatized everything from you know race racist to homophobe to transphobe i mean just name the labels the minute that gets leveled at somebody then we're really quick to backpedal and steer clear because we don't want to be categorized like that. Tip for anybody, if you're called those things unjustifiably, just look at them and say, okay, and continue on. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. A white Marchand tip. Yeah, or just ignore them altogether. Yeah. But, but yeah. And, and, and so anyways, I think that all of that, I, now they're kind of jumping into what we are going to talk about today. Okay. It does... Um, emphasize or at least point out the need and I think the desire for people to understand how to study their Bibles uh, for one for themselves but then also two just better more correctly more confidently and so there was actually a lot of questions around okay um, where do we start how do we interpret it when can we uh, apply certain different you know uh, I guess views to it so just just to begin with um if somebody was out there sitting down with the Bible, it can be kind of intimidating. And so how should someone even begin? What's a first step into studying the Bible and trying to understand God's word? Yeah. So the first step is, is to take the step is to start and to start with the understanding that, um, 
you won't understand all of it immediately. Um, it is a unique form of literature. It's, it has a unique nature to it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of the rules of life, one of the rules of exercise. Um, just get started. Do something to get the momentum going in the direction of the thing. Like, he's, I want to run a marathon. I can't run a marathon. Well, just start running. At least run half a mile. Like, you, you're going to have to build yourself. You're yeah. going to have to build up. Um, the same with Bible study. is uh, it's, it's a unique literature. It has a unique nature to it. So rather than saying, oh, I can't understand this or I don't understand it, just just step into it. And um, it's an important thing to understand, especially if you're brand new to it all, is that uh, the Bible isn't, it, we refer to it as a book, but it doesn't work like all the books that we've ever read. It's more like a library, honestly. Yeah, it's like a library. It's a collection of literature. And so it's not a, you have to start at chapter one and read straight through to the end of the book. Meaning you don't have to begin that way, like you would a novel. Um, so there, there is, there's a freedom or flexibility. You could start anywhere. Um, now, some places may not be the best places to begin just because of how unique they are within an already unique literature. So, you know, I, I, I'm not saying you can't start from the beginning. You could start with the book of Genesis and, you know, you could read all the way to Revelation. You could. That's one way to do it. That's not a wrong way. It may be a harder way just because of the nature of what you'll encounter, especially when you get three or four books into it. And yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> the first couple are pretty entertaining. Yeah. But well, you get you get... to, most people, you know, they get to Leviticus, and they're yeah, like, that's what, what in the world? And so, yeah, that's probably not the best place to, to begin. Not saying you can't. Just saying it may be a little bit more challenging than um, you you may be ready for or interested in. Um, so I, I would make some recommendations like start with the Gospels. Just start there. These four different records of the life of Jesus, um, many of them, there's a lot of similarities because it's the record of Jesus' life. And some differences because it's four different authors telling the story of Jesus' life or the account of Jesus' life from their perspective or from the perspective of the people that they talk to mm-hmm. as witnesses. Um, so that that's a great place to begin. It tends to be a bit more approachable. It's, it's um, has a lot of narrative to it, which tends to just be more engaging. Um, so that that's a that's a recommendation. Another recommendation would be, um, like, choose one of the early church letters. Those are often called epistles. So those are the letters that the apostles wrote to the early church. Um, So, you know, the letter of, like, Ephesians or Philippians, uh, those can be great places to start. Romans can be a great place to start, but it's a little bit like, uh, you're starting with algebra. I mean, it's, it's kind of dense. 
Yeah. And if you don't know that he's like talking to two different sets of people, <laughs> it can get confusing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's a great place to start. You just have to be ready to be nimble about it. Um, certainly Psalms is, is a place to start. Proverbs is a great place to start. You just need to know that you're in a, another unique kind of literature and it has to be handled properly. Um, so those are some great places to start. Uh, James, the book of James, tends to be one of the most, it's often viewed as one of the most practical books in the Bible about, you know, an explanation of living your faith out and teaching you some of the fundamental expressions of what it means to have a faith in Jesus. So James is a great, great place to start. My highest recommendation would be um, wherever you start, start with a good study Bible. And what a study Bible is, again, for those who may not know, a study Bible was created to help a student dive into the scriptures. So there is the scripture part of a study Bible, and then the authors or the editors of that study Bible have provided all kinds of supporting information and materials to help the reader understand the the scripture that they're reading. Yeah, And so it gives, you know, usually every book begins with an introduction. That's not scripture. That's what the editors have provided by you know, who wrote it, to whom were they writing, what was happening in the world at the time. There'll be maps and, you know, timelines that kind of give them some, you know, reference to what it is they're reading and what was happening at the time. Um, Then, you know, all through a study Bible, all through the the scripture reading, there's other supporting materials that explains individual verses, um, any, you know, major... Um, literary shifts that the author might have taken. Uh, it's going, like you mentioned in Romans, it's, it's probably going to say, okay, he's he's writing here to Jews, and in this passage he's writing to Gentiles, and here's what that means to them in light of what was happening in the, their world at the time. So I think a good study Bible is a great place to start. Um, I don't, I've... I'm familiar most with the New International Study Bible. Uh, New International Version of the Study Study Bible is is excellent. Every every one that I've ever looked at, the the supporting materials are really really good. Yeah, yeah. I was also going to say there's also a lot of really good uh, like video resources that are out there that can give you a good just overview and synopsis of wherever you're going to start because going into uh, say even the Gospel of John, knowing that he is kind of talking about how Jesus is God a little bit more than the others, that changes how you're going to read it, right? Yeah. And so just even knowing the theme of the book that you're going to read, and and the overview in the beginning of a study Bible also does that most of the time. Yeah, I, you know, I'm old school, so I'm thinking about reading it. You're younger than I am, so your point of reference would be, yeah, online, what video resources are available, and there's there's excellent video resources um, that will provide the same sort of supporting information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you, again, you can't you can't start in the wrong place because it's not written like that. Um, 
it's a library of records and letters and documents. So you, you could pick up anywhere. It's just that not having a larger context of what the Bible is about and the different sections of it, some places would just be harder for somebody who's brand new to it all. So, you know, I think in my growing up years, um, it was always, you know, start with the book of John or start with the book of Luke or, you know, start with the book of Matthew. That's, that's a great place to just sort of get started. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And so you mentioned NIV is that there's different Bible translations um, so I guess, what, I guess, what are, what are translations and why are they, you know, King James version is old talk and it sucks to listen to, <laughs> right? Even though I kind of like reading it sometimes. Yeah. You'll get us in trouble saying stuff like that. Makes you sound uh, really pious whenever you like read it though. <laughs> You're like, Oh, but this guy's judging me. Yeah. I think the thing that needs to first of all be clarified is there's a difference between the word translation and the word version. Mm. And really what we're talking about is the different versions. So there's the New International Version. There's the King James Version. There's the New American Standard Version. And it isn't really about translation because depending on what version you're in, the translation of Scripture is generally all the same. Mm -hmm. Subtle nuances of difference depending on what a version was seeking to accomplish. But it's the versions that are the wide variety. It's not translations. The translation generally has fallen along the same rules and the same boundaries. So whether you're reading the New International Version or the King James Version, the translation is essentially the same. What may be different is how they rendered the translation. So versions are really about, there's kind of like a spectrum of versions. So versions are about kind of literal and strict interpretation. And then out on the other end, you have sort of like read, readability and um, uh, familiarity with language. Mm. So on one end, with the literal or strict, they're, they're looking at the, the Greek and the Hebrew and saying, how can we most literally translate those words, those concepts? And so that's how our version's going to read. Whereas down here on this other end, uh, readability and familiarity is to say, we're going to look at the how to translate the Greek and the Hebrew, but put it in a way that is most familiar with how people talk and how they understand terms. And so basically I th I could be wrong on my my dating here but like in I think in the 60s and 70s there there was a real push to make the Bible um more um approachable, more readable to contemporary audience. And so then the language became, the language of, of the version became just more f common than, and, and so like you just mentioned, the King James Version, it was, I could be wrong, but like 1600s yeah. it's translated. 
Well, language in the 1600s was very different than it is today. And they use words like thee and thou and ye, right? And nobody really uses words like that anymore. So then what you have in the later versions is just an attempt to move away from that unfamiliar form of communication and render the translation in a language that is more familiar and approachable to a contemporary audience yeah who no longer uses these and thous and yees yeah well and that actually touches there was another question that was asked uh, it was a bit more specific but um this person was trying to decide he, he, i think they added like three different ways of i guess understanding a verse three different versions of a verse and they wanted to know they said that one version it applied to them more. Does that mean they should go with that one? How do they kind of decide? Granted, like you said, a lot of them are very similar, but I think it gets down into a bigger question of which one is most trustworthy? Which one's most trustworthy? And do we look at the scriptures and try to understand them by how best they apply to me? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, the ultimate goal is not how do they best apply to me. The ultimate goal, and I think the highest goal, is how accurately do they reflect the truth that God revealed. Then the question becomes the applicability of that truth to my life. Um, so there's two things I want to... Um, juggling here that I want to uh, communicate is first of all regardless of what version you use King James New International New English Translation Contemporary English Version I mean there's literally dozens of different versions substantively they're all identical in accurately capturing what God revealed occasionally, like you said, there might be a verse or two that the way that that version renders an interpretation of the Greek or the Hebrew might have like a subtle nuance, and it makes it sound like if you compare the three verses across three versions, it sounds like they might be, you know, different. The, the cases where that happens are so few. Mm-hmm. And it's just a unique thing. Like this committee that was working, this committee of scholars that was working on interpreting this verse, they decided that that Greek word with that grammar was really saying this. And another committee of scholars working on another version, they said, well, we, we take this as a, a, another grammatical expression in the Greek language, and so we think it, is better rendered that. The times that that happens are very, very few, and even there, it's just, it's nuance of difference. So it's important that anybody, that everybody understand that there, there's no version, no, um, no trustworthy version that's creating a whole different understanding of the truth that God has revealed. Does that make sense? Yeah, unless you have the Jehovah's Witness version. 
Yeah, so then you can get really far afield. <laughs> and and here's where it gets um, interesting or dicey. Uh, so out here on this far end of the readability familiarity scale, you have paraphrases like the message yeah. or the, the, the living Bible, I think was the original, and then the message came along. There's a couple other paraphrases. And that's just the extreme version of saying, how can we capture what God was saying in this passage in the most readable, familiar, inspirational kind of way? Well, that just allows for a lot of room for, you know, personal interpretation. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not in any way um, criticizing the paraphrase versions. I'm just saying they don't make great study Bibles. Um, the way I use them, I don't use them a lot, but I use them from time to time, is if I've read a passage of Scripture and it's, I just, I don't understand it even after kind of studying it or I want to see maybe what another way of understanding it is. I may pull out a paraphrase and go, okay, so what did they do with it here? Sometimes it helps. Most of the time, the most help is doing your study correctly mm -hmm. and really coming to grips with what the author meant to the original readers and why. He wrote what he did. Um, so I think, I think it's important to distinguish between translations and versions. A lot of times when people are asking what translation should I use, I think we need to guide them in their terminology and say, what well, you're really talking about what version. Well, I'm guilty of that too. Yeah. Um, now, I grew up, you know, when I was a kid, it was King James Version. Our church, that was how they understood to be the most accurate translation of the Bible that was out there. Not true, but there's a long history there, right? Um, then in uh, college, I, I went to a Bible college, I studied. The Bible was a core part of our curriculum. Um, I started using the New American Standard Bible. Mm, that's good. And it was down here on this end of, you know, literal, accurate rendition of the original. And then somewhere along the line, um, I got introduced to uh, the new international version. And I found it to be a really nice kind of middle ground. It, it, was, it was a very accurate by way of literal interpretation of the translation um, but it also had just some readability to it. So these days I, I use the New International Version to study and to teach, um, not because it's better than something else. It's just the one that I've landed on. And I use the same one so that um, the audience is getting a consistent, you know, representation of the, past, of the scripture that I'm using. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, maybe this is more than anybody wants to hear, but. I think we'll probably get confused because, I mean, if you're going to go and you just search Holy Bible, if you're going to buy one, you're going to see all these acronyms and letters and yeah. you're like, what? The, what is a red letter? Yeah. And all this kind of stuff. And so. I have a Bible software where you can, you know, 
choose a passage and then you can choose what version. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm pretty confident there's almost a hundred versions in that list. Yeah, there's a website called Bible Hub. Yeah. That anybody can get onto. Oh yeah. And it, it it's awesome. But yeah, it gives you the same yeah. Same kind of thing. So again, this may be more than anybody's interested, so I'll keep it real simple. But maybe understanding a little bit of the history of how the Bible came to be and how it eventually came to English might clarify the difference between translation and version. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the big words in the discussion of the Bible is this word, these words, original manuscripts. So there was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi that was an original manuscript. It was written in the language of Greek, and historical Christian belief is that God governed and directed his writing of it so that it's the truth that God wanted revealed. Peter wrote two letters to the early church. Um, John wrote a record of the life of Jesus. When he recorded it, wrote it, actually wrote it down. It was an original manuscript. Isaiah produced an original manuscript. Jeremiah produced an original manuscript. Those manuscripts existed. And let's just take, for instance, we'll follow kind of the track of the letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. At some point, people started making copies. And when I say people started making copies, like people who by profession made copies of literature. I mean, this is long before there were copiers, Mm -hmm. right? So they literally had to do that by hand. So in order to get Paul's letter to the church of Philippi to more people, people started making copies of it, scribes. And you have to know that they, they were professionals. That's what they did for a living. There were rules. There were practices to ensure that they would make the most reliable copy of the original. So over time, you have literally hundreds of these copies out circulating so that people in different places are reading what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Um, Then at some point, third or fourth century, uh, church leaders... They, they make a decision, hey, let's make a collection of these letters that were written, these accounts of the life of Jesus. Let's, make, let's get a collection of um, what the Old Testament prophets recorded as revelation. So third, fourth century, they start, they do an, an enormous amount of work, and it's all kinds of rules, regulations, and metrics about recognizing what is in fact the best representation of the original that was written. And so they they end up through years and years of discussion and years and years of a process, they compile what they believe to be, what they recognize to be, what God revealed to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, David, Peter, the Apostle Paul. And we get we get these 66 items. 
we call them books. They're not really books. They're letters. They're histories. They're documents. They're records. They, they each have kind of a different genre to them. Not books as in a book that you, that you and I, when you, we use that word. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter. We call it the Book of Philippians. It's really Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Um, so eventually we get this, early church gets this collection of these 66 records, documents, letters, and, and it basically declared these are the ones that we trust to be reliable revelation from God through, their, through the authors. And there were certain criteria criteria oh. that those things had to meet that, like, say, books like the Dead Sea Scrolls failed to meet. So, And even some books that are in the Catholic Bible, uh, non-Catholics say, that, well, these failed to meet. Yeah, they criteria. didn't meet certain criteria. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there was an enormous amount of discussion and, um, you know, protocol around how these 66 books get recognized. But... You know, originally they're in they're in the language of Hebrew, and they're in the language of Greek primarily. There's a couple of places where there's Aramaic, and but primarily Hebrew and Greek. Well, then the decisions made in church history. Well, in order to make the Bible accessible to more people, we gotta we're gonna make it in languages that exist. So it goes through a translation process and we have you know a translation into latin so basically you're taking hebrew vocabulary and you're finding a corresponding latin word and latin grammar that will best represent that hebrew original same with greek they're, they're translating into latin greek ideas the Greek language, grammar, and meaning, okay? So even that creates challenges because it isn't a one-to-one sort of parallel. And then then you, you move from um, Latin into German. Well, you got new challenges now. German language, German vocabulary, German rules of grammar, and trying to you know, get an accurate rendition. That's the translation process. And eventually, there, there comes the, the um, opportunity to turn this into English. Again, English vocabulary, English grammar, and how do we best capture. So that's, that journey there is the translation process. What happens then in the you have these you have the english translation of the scriptures and then over time you have different people taking opportunity to create a version okay right so and literally it's committees of scholars who gather together to say hey let's make a version of the bible that is as literally accurate to the original languages as we possibly can, but in English. So you got this committee of scholars, and that's their, you know, that's their directive is to translate the Bible as 
a version of the Bible as literally as they can. And then years later, you have another committee of scholars who are gathered together to say, let's, let's make a version of the Bible that's very readable and you know familiar in language. Let's drop the these and the thous and let's render it in a way more familiar to how people talk today, right? So that's, that's where the version, the versions come out of the translation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that, that's why I, I tend to want to guide people into asking the right question. What version of the Bible should I get? rather than what translation should I get? Because the translation is essentially the same across all the versions. No substantive differences that alter what God was trying to reveal yeah. to human beings. No, that makes sense. And I think that that's helpful for people um, to understand as they go about it. And then also your recommendations for versions. <laughs> So you kind of touched on some of this, but um, when it comes to whether it be kind of verses that are more uh, cause more conflict or whether things that are just confusing to someone, is there a right or wrong way to interpret the Bible? And how does one determine what is the right way and what is the wrong way? So not to sound hard-nosed, but yes... There is a wrong way to study the Bible. And uh, the right way is to abide by the rules. So there are rules governing how you interpret literature, just literature in general. So because the Bible is literature, there's rules governing how you handle literature. And not that you have to have a master's degree in understanding all of the rules, but respecting some of the rules that govern the proper interpretation of Scripture is really, really critical. Um, so what, what's the phrase in real estate? Location, location, location. Mm-hmm. That, that's the big guiding principle uh, of choosing the best place to live. When it comes to studying the Bible, the maxim is context, context, context. That's the first and greatest rule for studying the Bible properly. You can't just dive in, find a verse, pull it out, make it say what you want it to say, and do it correctly. You, you can do that, and lots of people do it. Oh, yeah. But it's not the proper way to handle literature, and it's not the proper way to handle scripture. So you're always asking the question, or the, the good student is always asking the question, what's happening in the context? And that's that opens up a big world of discovery, because context can be, what's the historical context? What was happening in history at that time? that might have influence on this passage. There's, um, you know, what we call social context. That's just what, what was life like at the time this passage was written? Like, how did people travel? What did they eat? Where did they live? Um, 
what was what was going on with like clothes they wore because that might have an influence on how you interpret a, a verse. Based. Washing feet, for instance. Yeah. That sounds so weird to us. It sounds now. weird to us because disgusting. It's, it's disgusting to us as Americans. We, we, I mean, other than if you're a nurse uh, or some kind of, you know, healthcare provider. Weirdo. <laughs> or a weirdo. Well, no, a nurse sometimes No, I'm not to... saying that nurse is a weirdo. <laughs> I'm saying there oh, are other oh, weirdos. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yes, if if you got some hang-ups, you might be into washing feet. But back in the first century, culturally, that and socially, the social context of the first century, that was normal. So when Christ uses that act as a way of teaching his disciples, they weren't thinking, oh, weirdo. Yeah. It made sense to them. They they had been in that experience before they knew the context to that. Uh, sometimes the political context of the day has an influence. Uh, that That's a huge thing. Uh, back then, most of the Bible is told in the political context of empires mm. with a king or a Caesar or an emperor, a completely different political system than we know as Americans. So to force an American political system interpretation on a passage of Scripture is, is completely out of context because those people, they, they didn't understand the two-party system and you know, a declaration of independence. That's the furthest thing from their experience. Um, then there's, there's grammatical rules like the way that language works and the way that the Greek language works and the way that the Hebrew language works. There's nuances to um, understanding why an author might have used this expression versus that expression. Um, so understanding that kind of, that context, then, then we have what's called the immediate context. Like, what is the author writing in that paragraph? Yeah. In relationship to the paragraph that preceded it, in relationship to the chapter that you're in. He's not just making stuff up. He's he's developing an argument. He's making a point. He's he's providing um, a, a way of thinking about a matter. So to simply yank a verse or two out of the immediate discussion on hand, well, that's an improper way to understand the scripture. And that's how a lot of people use it too. Like just All the time. fair warning. Like and and the good part is that the immediate context of a verse, most of the time, if somebody uses it incorrectly, the immediate context will nullify it. Like that yeah. alone. Yeah. Just the surrounding two or three sentences. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been in plenty of discussions where somebody said, well, the Bible says this, and I go, well, the Bible says that in relationship to what the author was talking about in that situation, and it doesn't apply to this one. So yeah, context, context, context is huge. So that all fits under you know a broader category. Of, here's a fancy word: hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the rules that you use to handle literature. So there's biblical hermeneutics, like how do I handle the unique nature of the scriptures? And um, the, the worst rule is 
well, this is what I think it says. Yeah, no one cares. (laughs) At the end of the day, what I think about something means nothing to what God actually said. Exactly. So, you know, what I think it's saying without any familiarity with the rules of context Mm -hmm. and language and literature is the wrong way to interpret the Bible. Really, the question, the big and burning question when you're reading your Bible is, what did this author intend to say to his audience that was reading it at the time it was written? Then the better I understand what he's writing to them and their experience, I can start drawing parallels to my life in the 21st century and make sense of how it might apply. And, I mean, that's, that's, that's the fun stuff, I think, of, of Bible study is what do I have to, what do I have to learn about um, what was happening in that original setting, what was happening in that context, so that I can interpret or understand this passage of Scripture most accurately and then start asking myself, what do I share in common with these people? Um, you know, in the past, I've, I've used the phrase, the Bible, wasn't, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It was written to the people that lived in the first century in the city of Ephesus. Paul's letter was written to them. It's for us because the revelation of God and his truth abides through time. So what was true for Christians in the first century is true for Christians in the 13th century and true for Christians in the 21st century. I just have to do the hard work of figuring out how are our lives parallel. And they, they won't be parallel when it comes to politics because first century experience is very different from 21st century America. But there's, there are shared experiences that... Um, I can connect with to say, here's what I learned from this passage and how it applies to my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I get it. I, I, I get it. I understand it. This whole idea of, well, I'm going to read my verse for the day and, and then you know, get my little hit to go about all that's before me over the next 20 hours. I get it, but it's really not the wisest, most substantive approach to learning what your Bible teaches. Um, if if you're seeing it as sort of an inspiration for the day, then yeah, there might be some value to it. But it's it's a little like taking a vitamin; it it'll wear off. Really, the objective is to become a student of the scriptures and understanding understanding the broad context of things that are written there so that you build a, a theological foundation that's consistent uh, one of the imp- uh, other you know hermeneutical rules or one of the guiding principles of studying a scripture is if, if somebody says something, like if the Apostle Paul says something in one letter, 
is there examples of similar statements made either in other letters or by other authors? Yeah. So does does Paul say something and Peter says something that's consistent with it? And Jesus said something that's consistent with what Paul's saying is is there a consistency across numerous authors and a consistency across numerous genres of literature that would say yeah, that's trustworthy as an abiding truth. Um, so you know, it's just it's a fascinating world of study. That's why I'm, my point is that rather than you know a little one minute hit each day, I think a really healthy Christian life includes you know a dedicated search for understanding the scriptures beyond just the little inspirational reflection for the day. And it's and it's worth taking it outside of yourself. So like it's not what God's word means or, or this verse means or this passage means. You should try to get an understanding of what other people, other Christians that you trust, also think that means. And then you can also look at what Christians throughout history, in the same way that you just said, hey, even just check within the Bible itself, absolutely. And then even beyond that, it's like, well, hey, what if what if Christians throughout history said about this thing Um, because it helps you to provide a foundation having a foundation on some of the basics helps helps you to be able to encounter difficulties and questions that come up in a in a more prepared way because you can say well I don't you're right the Bible doesn't maybe it doesn't even speak specifically about how to date in the 21st century right but it does give you the principles that you can come to a decision on how you would answer that thing or act in this way or whatever it may be. Right. And that's why it's so important is because that foundation that you're building, you're going to have a foundation either way. And if you build it on the Bible, well, that's going to influence everything else in your life. Right. So, so kind of a long interpretation. This one was brought up. Uh, This question was also asked, when is it applicable to attribute to verses or scenarios within the Bible uh, cultural context as a reason for thinking about it differently. Do you want me to tell you specifically what this is in reference to? Yeah. It was in reference to your answer on women past- women uh, pastoring. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which I think is a fair question. Right. Um, it is a fair question. Not, you don't have to answer specifically about the women pastoring, right. but like when the cultural limitations or differences. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's one of the tensions of Bible study is figuring out what commands of Scripture make sense in a certain cultural context and which ones um, make sense across all cultural context. And it's sometimes dicey and somebody has to do their best, their best study, come to their best conclusion and then make a decision about what stays in first century and what expands to 21st century. And the women, you know, the question of women in ministry, (laughs) there's literally thousands of books, commentaries, um, podcast discussions about 
what part of Paul's instructions to the early church about a woman's role in the church and in ministry is is bound by what was reality in the first century about women in general and what place they could have in society and in organizations and which one of those commands is not bound by society and culture and has this tremendous breadth or flexibility uh, to be interpreted or be expressed in different ways than how it was in the first century. And, you know, you're going to go to everything from historical context and you're going to social context and the use of grammar. I mean, that's one of the big, big discussions in the whole discussion of women in ministries, this Greek word head and this idea of headship. And boy, you and I, I think have different perspectives on that. So yeah, I mean, literally commentaries, pages and pages and pages of commentary written on just that one Greek word and what it means. You and should have used hierarchy instead. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> that's important to you. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm answering the question as clearly as I want, but yes, there, there are places of interpretation in Scripture where it gets dicey and there are differing viewpoints and opinions and I'm all for differing viewpoints and opinions um, in things that are flexible. And so basically on that particular issue, I've done my study. I've looked at a lot of material. I'm not going to say I looked at all of it because it would be impossible to look at all of it because there's so much of it. I've looked at authors that I've trusted, commentaries, commentators that I trust, and I came to a conclusion, I came to a decision that there were certain cultural points of reference to what Paul's writing to the early church about the role that women can play. But there's a larger context of redemption and biblical community that I think also comes to bear on the discussion and gives me at least the flexibility or the freedom for another expression of how that's handled. Well, and I think too, um, I guess just for instance, like the last time we discussed that, I, I don't, I didn't necessarily know where I stood. I just wanted to uh, push back, not just for pushing back sake, but they were honestly my questions too. And I think that it was good, but like I've been thinking about it since then. Um, but in the same way as like, Jesus doesn't come out and say slavery's wrong, right? And in fact, I think Paul, oh boy, now I'm forgetting. There's a letter that has to do with like with with a slave yes. and his master, right? Yes. What is so Philemon? Is, yeah, Philemon. Um, <laughs> if you like steak, yeah, Philemon. But yeah, Philemon. No, it's Philemon. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyways, he, he didn't come out and actually say, "Hey, this is wrong." Uh, he was just addressing a reality of the yeah. first century. He's addressing a reality of the first century and, and the, the overall overarching meaning of the entirety of God's word brings one to the conclusion that slavery is wrong. It, it was, it was Christian thought and beliefs that led to its destruction. Right. right. And so, 
But he didn't he didn't straight up address it then. And I think in the same way, um, you could say similarly with, with women pastoring, um, that yeah, it was yeah. just it was just a reality of the culture to a certain degree. I think that I probably draw a line somewhere, but Yeah, so you got you got Paul's letter to Philemon. You have um Colossians, you have uh Philemon, uh Ephesians. Where Paul's addressing slaves and owners, and he nowhere says this is wrong and unacceptable for Christ followers. Why? Because it was such a part of the culture that it really actually was very different than how we typically think of slavery, but yeah, um, yeah. slavery by way of hardship and diminishing of a person's It was not the same value. over there, I don't think. Right. But anyways, so while he doesn't speak to that, there are like that that consistency of scripture that speaks to the value of human beings and and respect and and all those things that eventually you come to the point of saying slavery as we have known it in the history of America is wrong. It doesn't fit God's design for how human beings should relate to each other. So um, we we abolish it, we move away from it. Um, I think, I think, again, just my opinion, I, I think there's some of those same uh, implications on the discussion of women and their role in the church because of, by virtue of women's role and place in society at that time. You, you could even make a case that um, in that time, uh, women officially were not permitted to be disciples. That would not have been allowed. Well, I think there's a broader context of the discussion where Jesus makes it obvious that he's inviting all, regardless of gender, into his kingdom to become his disciples. We start seeing women more and more involved in the life of the church um, throughout the early epistles, and then you can take the broader theme of redemptive community in the church, endeavoring to restore what was broken by sin, and suddenly now there's there's more freedom and flexibility to say, well, it wasn't specifically addressed in a way in the New Testament letters that would disqualify the freedom of expression of pursuing something like women being pastors. And I think too that we there's so much that just gets confused around cultural things like that because our idea of a pastor is probably different than uh what a pastor would have been back then maybe. And I but I know that it's definitely different than I think that uh, for instance a distinguishing line for me is like pastor and senior pastor. It's like, well, what's the senior leadership of the church? And just a leader in the church. By all means, I think that women can be leaders in the church. I might draw, like for instance, I might, might draw, yeah. I might draw the line at senior leadership. Right. Okay. Um, But not at all, just in leadership in general. Um, So yeah, just not getting confused or conflating everything to be the same as as it is today, or, or as it was back then, 
can help us avoid some of those problems too. Right. And, and I'll, again, just freely admit, lots of people with lots of different opinions and perspectives on that very matter of what's first century and what's timeless. And good people, high view of Scripture, deep faith in Jesus— just coming to very different conclusions about that. And um, I've been using this phrase lately. It's come up a few times. Um, we all assume the risk for what we choose to believe. And that's becoming like more and more um, powerful the more I consider it, is all of us choose what we're going to accept to be true, and then we... We assume the risk for that. And so, in a sense, I've come to a conclusion about what I believe on those matters. I assume the risk that someday I'll stand before God and I'll give an account for what I taught of his scripture. And I guess I assume the risk for thinking that I have permission to create a church that allows women to be pastors. Somebody else may not come to that conclusion, may not assume that same risk but that's kind of off our topic one of us will be able to look at the other and say i told you so <laughs> yeah let's actually see. no not with my not, not with my not where i've landed currently you won't be able to say that because i agree with you oh that's just so funny to think about you and i standing in the long line waiting to stand before god, god and we god. get done and you'll be like looking over your head going Told you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you have you have to settle this dispute we've been talking about. Yeah, he'll probably grin when he comes up when we come up. He'll go, oh yeah, Marchant, I remember you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what you should have known, <laughs> Wilson. Oh my word, do you and I have some things we need to talk about? Oh boy, so good. But all right, <laughs> so. So anyways, tread carefully, and I also, I think that this is a safe thing to say, is that don't don't attribute today's cultural view of something uh, first. I, I think that it's probably wise to just go with what it says and then come to your own conclusion after deep study, rather than just throwing in what culture and society says about a given topic right now, yep. automatically. Happens. All the time, contemporary society too often becomes the guiding principle for how somebody interprets scripture. And we want it to fit our contemporary mores and ethics and morality. And it doesn't. That's why, and this is part of my training. I mean, the college I went to, the graduate school I went to, this was just drummed into my head. And it's, it is, it's very much a part of me. My first and highest priority in studying the scripture is, what did this mean to the original reader? Coming to best understand that as I can before I ever start thinking, how does it apply to my life? But nowadays, um, and you see this across churches in America, Let me let me select the social issue of the day that you know that I'm most riled up event about, and then I'll go hunting in the Bible for verses that I think uh, support you know my conclusion. I, I'm seeing preachers do that mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So 
what's the social issue? What's my viewpoint on it? Let me see if I can yank some verses out of a context that would provide me the the rationale to to say, yeah, see, this is this is right. And I I know I come from a very different view of scripture and where you start. And um, I, this is not original to me. Um, I think this is actually I heard it first from like Francis Chan. Is um, he said it? You know, much more powerfully than I'm about to say it, but it was it was basically um, culture submits to the scripture; the scripture doesn't submit to culture. And we're seeing a lot of that these days of people wanting the Bible to either say what supports their contemporary cultural, you know, morality, or they want to dismiss the Bible and what it has to say. Well, that's ancient. That's puritanical. That's patriarchal. That's you know all the words. So we don't allow that into the discussion because we know the truth as defined by, you know, what's most popular or the contemporary thought. And so um, that's just begging for trouble all the way down the line. So we're really, we're really asking what, what is the timeless truth of God's word and how do we bring our place in culture up underneath it? it submits to the truth of God's word. Yeah. As uncomfortable as it is, as unpopular as it is, as costly as it might be, I submit my life, my views, my beliefs, my habits, actions, all of that, I submit that to the authority of God's word. Yeah. And, and that, in the long run, that is the objective of Bible study. It's not the accumulation of biblical trivia, I've said. It's not the accumulation of theological data points that I can, you know, wrestle with people about. That, that's not the point of Bible study at all. The point of Bible study is becoming more like Jesus. So learning from my study how I submit my life to a better reflection of Christ and then endeavoring to live in that direction. Um, Again, I don't think the church always does a great job of that in the way that we go about Christian education. Is It can end up feeling a lot and sounding a lot like, I know all the verses and I know all the truths and now I can argue with the best of them and I can kind of dominate and intimidate you with what I know. Meanwhile, their life looks little to nothing like Jesus. And so we got it all wrong point of Bible study is the truth of God transforming my heart and my mind into something that's a better reflection of a person submitted to him. It's like unearned wisdom. It's not really good if you might have it in your head, but you haven't learned the lesson. Oh right? yeah. That's a good way to say that. Yeah. Yeah. That's for somebody who reads a lot and being younger, that's something that I have to make, like be constantly watchful of um, actually applying the principles and things that I have come to understand, but haven't necessarily lived yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can remember even as a, like a middle schooler, certainly as a teenager, 
and I'm I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but I remember being in church and kind of like being in the world of church. And because of the unique setting that I grew up in, the church I grew up in was literally down the street from a Bible college. So people I went to church with were either, you know, Bible professors um, or students, you know, preparing for pastoral or missionary ministry. So people immersed in a study of God's word. And I can remember as a kid not being able to reconcile. He knows so much about the Bible, and yet I've seen him act like this. Um, Or I've heard, you know, about the way he lives his life or an attitude that he has. And I was like, well, that's, that's not what you're telling me. That's not what the Bible story was about that you know so much about and you can pull apart from every angle, but I don't see that. I just remember that being confusing mm-hmm. to me. And it just highlights, you know, the, the fact that it's possible to be an avid student of the Bible and still not learn what you're supposed to learn. And that isn't to say that you aren't going to mess up. No, as no, you grow, but it, but if, if you know a whole bunch and, and your life is so wildly different, right? Yes. Like you're saying, yeah. no. And I know you're not saying that I'm just right. adding that in. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, and this just came to mind. I, th- I think another important rule for studying the Bible well, and this goes back to context is remembering that it was written to a people that lived a long, long time ago in a very, very different kind of place. And and even one of the major tensions in understanding the Bible properly is the difference between like Eastern thought and Western thought. And we're Western. We, we've been brought up in a re- Western frame of thinking and you know we can be very literal and factual and and um scientific scientific whereas an eastern frame of thought was more poetic and sort of a wisdom approach to life and it uses a lot more figuratives and figurative language more metaphorical sorts of expressions well if you go into the bible with your western mind then you, you can have a hard time navigating it because you're you're insisting that your Western mind um, that it submits to your Western mind. Western mind didn't even exist when it was written. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, I, the, when I learned that, I remember learning that along the way in school, and I was like, "Oh, well, that makes a huge difference in." sort of me insisting it say something a certain way. So, yeah, I I do think there's some general rules. I know there are very specific rules governing how you interpret literature. Um, I think the everyday Christ follower who hasn't, you know, gotten a master's degree in hermeneutics, um, I think there's still some very... um, approachable rules that we can get our arms around to guide us in our study of the scripture. Uh, And, you know, 
like I said earlier, the top one is context, context, context. And that's where a good study Bible comes in. Because a good Bible, a good study Bible is generally providing the supporting material to help you understand the context. So for the newbie, the person who's just getting started, or or even the Christian who's made a profession of faith years ago, but just really hasn't ever been mentored or directed in how to study the Bible, it, it can still feel kind of challenging and hard and new. But um, get started. Uh, get a good study the a good study Bible that will help. Um, like you said, get some other people around you who are making you know the same attempts to understand their faith and whether that's a life group or just a close knit group of friends that you meet together with to where you can have those discussions. Uh, I think that's it's part of the principle of iron sharpening iron is you know just rubbing ideas you know, against each other to kind of find out what's what's legitimate. Um, I think it's it's possible, especially now with the internet. <laughs> I mean, you, you can get a master's degree education in hermeneutics, if you'd like, just by watching enough YouTube videos. I mean, it's all out there. Mm-hmm. So you may not want to, you know, a person may not aspire to, I don't want a master's degree in how to study the Bible, but there's so much good information, training material that you have at your fingertips, literally with the internet, um, that you can, you can learn some really reliable approaches to how you go about studying the Bible that would give you some really confident conclusions about how, how it's to be understood. Makes me want to, create something and put it on the website so that way people have a concise kind of set of some rules that you would suggest and then maybe some resources too. Something that's useful for folks. Yeah, well, you know, we have a place on our website where people can go for encouragement and some direction on reading plans. Yeah. And so, man, if you want to work something up and add to that, I'd be happy to help you with that. But... Yeah, any resources we can provide to our church family or anybody who comes to our website by way of well, here's a here's a list of videos that would help as background to the you know the books of the Old Testament and to these letters in the New Testament. Just quick links like that could be incredibly valuable resource. And then taking some of those basic Bible study principles um, and giving somebody, you know, the information to be aware of those could go a long way to being helpful. I know whenever I, I watch other podcasters and things, um, and whenever they suggest something, I'm way more likely to go and look at it because I trust them. Yeah. And so, like, whether you go to Sibylla Creek or not, if you're listening to us, continue on for almost an hour and a half, um, <laughs> then, then you might trust us some. And so... I know it, it means a lot to me whenever people provide something that they trust because it, there's just so much confusing stuff out there. This podcast and just how complicated things can get is prime example. And yeah. so us being able to kind of, you know, cut all the fat away and say, here are some trusted resources. Yeah, but that's that's just kind of a normal part of how relational mm-hmm. life works is – 
you know, who do I go to for an auto mechanic? Well, you talk to a friend and they go, oh, you got to talk to this guy. This guy's, he's fair, he's honest, you know, whatever. And so we're more likely to take that recommendation to go to that auto mechanic. Or, you know, who should do my back surgery? Well, what do we do? We ask some other people who've had back surgery. Oh, don't go to that guy. He messed me up. Or go to this guy. I was really, really pleased with. So when somebody you trust yep. gives you a recommendation, it's, there's, there's a lot of um, weight, weight to that and a lot of traction to that. So if we've provided something by way of, you know, Sybil Creek Community Church or this podcast that's, you know, gives us some sort of rapport with a listener about how to go about studying their Bible and then we offer some resources, yeah, it, it could be useful to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll do that. All right. I'm working my way through the website now anyways with updates. So. Are you? Yeah. Is that part of your task? Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. It needed an update. It does. Learning HTML? Tell you what. Wow. Look at you. Or CSS. I don't know. I don't know any of the lingo, <laughs> and I'm very bad at it, but I can copy and paste pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's more than that, because I don't even know what those words that you just used meant. HMTL? Did I get them right? That's how people were thinking whenever you were talking about hermeneutics and all that other <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, alrighty, folks. Got any last words, or are we good? No, I, w- I, I just want to iterate, get started. Just find a place to jump in. Be prepared that you're not going to have it all figured out. It takes a little bit of work to find your footing in how you interact with the scriptures. But get started because it, it is food for the soul. And God uses the scriptures and the reading of Scripture and the studying of Scripture, God uses it in our soul for the work that he's trying to do in our life. And the person who's trying to follow Christ well but doesn't have the input of the Scriptures to inform and guide that, they're just, they're just asking for it to be more frustrating than it needs to be. And something I just thought about that I don't know if we actually mentioned, ask God to help you understand what you're reading. Absolutely. I don't know how we went this entire time and didn't say that, but we were saving the best to last. Yeah. But like, you know, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to actually reveal these truths to you. And, um, and so ask him to reveal them as you're reading rather than just going in trying to do it yourself. Cause you'll make fools of however smart we are. All right. No, great, great way to finish. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week, and we got more questions. Uh, I forgot which ones they were, but we'll see you then.